0: Author Robert Frost summed up all he had learned of life in the phrase, life goes on. Life has no timeouts, no interruptions, no halftimes, no intermissions. Life never takes a break to let you catch your breath. Life marches on. And the key to a fulfilling life is to find some meaning along the journey. This was the quest of the ancient Greeks. They scoured life for its overarching purpose. The Greeks noticed that life operated by natural laws. This indicates a kind of logic or an intellectual force behind the order and symmetry that characterizes life. The Greek philosophers coined a term for this ultimate meaning. They called it the logos, or in English, the word. And this was the goal of Greek philosophy, to identify the logos, or the reason behind reality. They examined the visible world for expressions of life's unseen purpose. Yet despite their great wisdom, the philosophers failed to find the answer. Their search for meaning ended a bust, summed up by the man who quoted Robert Frost, but with a twist, life goes on, I just forgot why. The Apostle John wrote wrote to a Greek audience, and he must have shocked his readers right off the bat, for in the first chapter, he answers the question that had stumped their famed philosophers for centuries, for John has good news, the word has been heard, the unseen has been revealed, there is a God, and he has made himself known His purpose is known in a word. The Logos the Greeks searched for was not a primal force, but it was a person, a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the reason behind reality. He is the Logos behind the cosmos. Jesus Christ is the residence of absolute truth, of undiluted love, of eternal life. Oh, life goes on. And it's all about Jesus. Come to him and you'll find your life's true purpose. This is the theme of John's gospel. And he starts out with a bang. In the beginning was the Word. That is the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is the Word and the Word was God. Here is an emphatic declaration of the deity of Jesus. You know, just as my words are an expression of my mind and my heart, the Word is the expression of God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us that in times past, God spoke through Hebrew prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is God's final word to humanity. You know the Nike swoosh, may be the sporting world's most famous logo. It's everywhere. Nike pays teams to wear their swoosh. It's nothing but a fat apostrophe. But all over the world, it's instantly recognizable. It stands for what Nike promotes, speed and skill and athleticism and victory. And God also has a logo. His word, the logos became flesh. A baby. Call it, call him a little apostrophe, if you will. A baby was born in Bethlehem. When you think of God's infinite wisdom and ultimate power and perfect love, you should think of Jesus. Our Lord is God's logo. He's God's swoosh. All of the Nike Corporation's goals and culture are encapsulated and expressed in their swoosh. And likewise, all of God is packed up and revealed in Jesus Christ. Yet there's a difference in a logo and the logos. Nike created its swoosh, whereas the logos of God was before creation. For John says of Jesus in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the expression or the logos of God, but he's more, for he's God himself. The Greek word for God is theos, and John is saying the logos and theos are one and the same. Jesus was preexistent and uncreated. He was with God before time began. He was God. Jesus is the key to life. And then verse 3, all things were made through him and without him, Nothing was made that was made. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, on the sixth day, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice God referred to himself in creation by the plural pronoun, us. You know, the Bible teaches that there is one God, one true God. But that one God eternally exists in three persons father son and holy spirit christians refer to god's nature by the term trinity god is a blend of both unity and diversity he's one god but that one god exists in three distinct persons and the father was not alone in his creation for all three members of the trinity played a role in the bible's opening scene the spirit of god hovers over the water Then the Father God speaks through the word of God, Jesus, let there be light, and boom, there was light. As John said, all things were made through him. And then in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Modern genetics has enabled us to engineer the very coding of life. Scientists can manipulate the genes of tomatoes to yield specific flavors, and program flowers to produce different colors. Geneticists tinker with the molecule's DNA, but they can't produce life itself, for life comes from God. John says it originates with Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Thus, the key to improving our quality of life isn't found in unlocking our DNA, but in submitting to God in his desire to transform us spiritually. Rather than undo the fall through Christ, we can be redeemed, which is far greater. And Jesus' life is the template, the prototype of what every life was meant to be. His life was the light of men. The ancient Greeks thought of life consisting of four elements, light and breath and water and bread. Bread. And it's interesting, this now is what shapes John's depiction of Jesus in his gospel. In chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the light of life. In chapter 3, he's portrayed as the breath of life. In chapter 4, the water of life. And in chapter 6, John calls him the bread of life. John also writes in verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Did you hear about the colony of mice that lived deep inside the grand piano? From the beginning, the mice enjoyed the beautiful music that came from the piano. The music lighted up their dark piano world. Common sense told them that the music was no accident. All mice believed in a great unseen pianist. That is until one day an inquisitive mouse crawled into a part of the piano that no mouse had ever been before. He reported back what he had seen that vibrating wires are what's making the music. Well, another mouse he went even deeper into the guts of the piano and he said that that first mouse was wrong, that the music was made by felt hammers that were actually striking the wires. Well, the, mouse, the mice concluded that their world was mechanical and impersonal. That the great unseen pianist must have been a myth, a primitive speculation of what now could be physically explained. And yet, sadly, they looked only inside the piano, not outside. They didn't see the great pianist who set at the keys. And what happened to the mice colony in their piano world has happened to modern man in God's world. We've scratched just a little surface of knowledge. We've learned just a little bit about the mechanics of God's creation. And in our arrogance, we've concluded that the music of life is the result of wires and hammers. All the while, we've ignored the all-knowing and all-talented pianist sitting at the keyboard. Friends, if you've not discovered Jesus, it's because you're only looking inside the piano. You're searching in the dark world rather than looking outside the piano. For there is a light shining into our darkness. Jesus is that light. And yet John says that we become so used to the darkness that the light now hurts our eyes. And so we cover our eyes rather than let the light shine in. This is why God sent a helper, to open our eyes to the light of God. And we read about him in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not the author and the disciple, the apostle John, but John the Baptist. The man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. You know, the moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of the sun. Likewise, John was not the light. Like the moon, he simply reflected the light of God's Son. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, here is the greatest tragedy of all history. The creator, the light of the world, visited the world that he had created, yet his creation failed to recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus of Nazareth suffered from a tragic case of mistaken identity. He came to his own, the Jews, that is. These were the people who could have recognized him through their prophecies and through pictures, the Hebrews had taught what Messiah would look like. And if they had been looking without prejudice, they would have seen God's nature and love and promises in the person of Jesus. But there was evil in their hearts. And rather than receive the truth, it caused them to try and silence it. Verse 12. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's where the Jews failed. This is where their prejudice is set in. The Jews felt that it was their right to be children of God. And they assumed that membership in God's family was a matter of pedigree, and of privilege, and of performance. And boy, they emphasized all three. They were born of the bloodline of Abraham. They had the right pedigree. They behaved according to the law of Moses. And salvation was bestowed on them by priestly pronouncements. Oh, but they were completely wrong. For salvation is granted by God and God alone, Jesus tells us. God sets its terms. God issues its pardons. God regenerates spirits. Salvation has never been via blood or birth, or by the strength of one's flesh, or by the permission of a man or men. In short, it's not by breed, or by deed, or by decree. God alone hands out salvation, and he's chosen to give it only to people who trust their lives to his son, Jesus. For verse 14 says, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us the logos of god became flesh the greek word translated dwelt means to pitch a tent here john tells us that jesus was god camping out among us i love the paraphrase the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood god came into the hood he stepped out of heaven to walk our mean streets This gives Jesus some street cred. In short, God became a mouse and moved into the piano. And please don't gloss over the miracle here that the Word, the Logos, the source and culmination of all life became flesh. The Logos fashioned a body from human blubber, slid from eternity into time through a woman's birth canal was wrapped tightly in strips of scrap fabric, then laid in an animal's feed trough. God entered this world through its lowest door. He stooped down in order to lift us up. God now cries when we cry. He laughs when we laugh. He hurts when we hurt. He's been among us. He was one of us. See, the Greeks figured the Logos created the universe, then went into hiding. But John says that Jesus not only created the universe, that he joined it, and that he even came to save it. Verse 14 continues, and we beheld his glory, the glory as one of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I once had a friend who worked in a nuclear lab. Whenever I saw him, I jokingly said, man, there's a special glow about you. But, you know, that was true of Jesus. We beheld his glory, John says. Now, I don't think Jesus glowed in the dark. He didn't have some phosphorescent tint about him. But you knew that Jesus had been with the Father in heaven. He had an authority about him. Jesus was only 30-something years old, but he seemed timeless when you met him. Everything about our Lord smacked of the supernatural. Traces of God were all over his life. And what really set Jesus apart was a blend of grace and truth. There was no harshness in the truth that he spoke. And there was no compromise in the grace that he showed. He called out and forgave sin with an equal boldness. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And know what John calls Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. You know, the the other Gospels teach us that Jesus was born of a virgin, that God was his father, not Joseph. When Jesus was conceived, God's spirit borrowed Mary's womb, a divine seed nestled in a human cradle. Mary's child was no mere man but God's offspring. No one else can claim this kind of exclusivity, and physical origin. Thus, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Verse 15 shifts us back to John the Baptist. John bore witness of Jesus and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now remember, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins John, in fact, was six months Jesus' elder, and yet here John speaks of Jesus' preexistence. He says that Jesus was before me, for unlike us, Jesus' birth was not his beginning. John knew that Jesus had shared eternity with the Father before coming to earth. And of his fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace." grace that's a wonderful word there's a dennis the menace comic strip that perfectly defines god's grace dennis and his buddy joy they're walking home from the wilson's house their hands are full of cookies their faces are covered with chocolate and crumbs and smudges and they got these great big smiles on their face joy asks dennis he says i wonder what we did to deserve this Dennis, normally a menace, a young man certainly in need of God's grace, answers. He says, look, Joy, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies, not because we're nice, but because she's nice. And this is grace. It's unprompted love. It originates in God, not us. It's never earned. It's never purchased. Grace is love that's on the house. And Jesus is full of this grace. His love is grace for grace. Jesus is not only full of grace toward us, he fills us with grace toward others. Grace is love for us, yes, but it's also power to love others as we've been loved. For Verse 17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through the law, Moses revealed God's rules and God's righteousness. But through Jesus, God revealed the truth of his intentions and the reality of his amazing grace. Moses said, don't cross that line. While Jesus says, I'll bear the cross for you. Moses said, you better not. Jesus says, trust me and I'll make you better. Moses said, you don't deserve God's blessing, while Jesus serves a blessing that none of us deserve. If you want justice, see Moses. But if you need mercy and grace like me, then call on Jesus. Grace came through Jesus. Think of it this way. Moses wrote traffic tickets, but Jesus teaches us to drive safely. And here's the challenge for any church. Do we issue citations or do we encourage folks to get in the car and do we teach them to drive? That's what we should be doing. Christians are agents of God's grace. And yet too many churches act like disciples of Moses. The law gets preached every Sunday, do this and do that. Too many churches have become judgmental and legalistic. At Calvary Chapel, we want to be a grace place. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Whose disciples are we? And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. Now, Exodus 33 tells the story of how Moses saw God's backside. Not his face, but his back. Apparently, under the law, that was as close to God as any one God. But now, John tells us that the Son has declared God. The Greek word translated declared is exegesis, which means to unfold or to explain. You know, oftentimes a good Bible study is called an exegesis of the text. Well, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Watch Jesus, listen to Jesus, and you'll get a sermon of God, about God. Jesus' whole life was a divine revelation. He was the Word, the Logos, made flesh. And then verse 19 again shifts back to John the Baptist, Jesus' advanced man who paved the way for Jesus with a message of repentance. We're told, now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, you remember John the Baptist. He lived an austere life. He came out of the wilderness munching on honey and and locusts. You remember this character? He lacked the refinement of the Jerusalem priesthood. And yet people from all over Israel flocked to this man to listen to John. John told the people to repent. And then he dunked them in the river. It was a symbol of God's cleansing. Jerusalem's religious hierarchy saw John as a threat to their influence. And so they sent a posse of priests to interrogate him, to find out about his authority, to question him. They said, who are you? Verse 20, he answers. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, or anointed one. John says, I'm not the Messiah. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, according to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Elijah is to return before the coming of Messiah. And this will happen. Revelation 11 mentions two witnesses that will appear on earth prior to Jesus' second coming. It's my opinion that one of those witnesses will be Elijah. These priests knew Malachi's prophecy, and they asked John if he was Elijah. John had said elsewhere that he had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But here he makes it clear that, no, I am not Elijah. The priest also asked him, are you the prophet? This was a reference to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. For Moses had predicted that God would raise up a prophet like him, the fulfillment of which was the Messiah, not John. Jesus, not John. So John was not Christ, the Messiah. He was not Elijah. He was not the prophet. Who was he? Well, they continued their interrogation. Then they said to him, Who are you that you may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And here John quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Isaiah had mentioned an unnamed prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And John is saying, I am that unnamed voice. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy. I'm just the cry. What was vital about John was his message, not the messenger. You see in the first century it was common for visiting dignitaries to send out an advance team. They traveled the route that the king would pass. Dangerous bends in the road were straightened out. Potholes were repaired. Their job was to make sure that the coast was clear for the king's arrival. And this was John's job. It was to make straight the way of the Messiah who would come after him. John's ministry was to point people to Jesus. Author Pam Petler, she has a chapter in her book, The Joy of Stress. She's entitled the chapter, They're Getting Ahead of You. She tells the story of a graduate student at the University of California. This was an intense, highly competitive young man with great ambitions. And yet one day, while in the library, the fellow went berserk. The police had to arrest him as he was shouting at all the other students, Stop! Stop! You're getting ahead of me! How do you respond when you realize that other people are getting ahead of you? It's been said, just when you start winning the rat race, you meet faster rats. In fact, while you're here this morning, there's probably a salesman out there planning his day tomorrow, hoping to get the jump on you. Or a musician practicing, working to take your place. Or a ball player training, all of them hoping to better you in some way. How do we respond? Well, John the Baptist ran his race faithfully and he left it up to God where he would finish. Are we trying to be somebody, even somebody for God, or are we content to be a nameless voice? Not a celebrity, not the guy, but just a cry, a shout out for God, a witness for him in our world. That's what I want to And then verse 24, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? To baptize required a divine authority. Well, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. The coming one, Jesus, he has the real authority. For compared to Jesus, John wasn't worthy to untie his master's sandal, the job of the humblest slave. Verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. It's interesting, John baptized near the Jordan River where God had rolled back the water so Joshua and Israel could cross through the dry riverbed into the promised land. That crossing and John's baptism were both a signal of new beginnings. Well, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Realize prior to this moment, for the previous 1,500 years, the Jewish sacrificial system had produced an ocean of blood. Millions of animals had been sacrificed, and they had all pointed to the one supreme climactic sacrifice, the end of all sacrifices, the cross of Jesus. The Son of God will spill his sinless blood. His His sacrifice will do what all the other sacrifices foreshadowed, yet fell short of accomplishing, that of obtaining a permanent pardon for our sin. And John is clear that Jesus will not only die for Israel's sin, but for the sin of all the world, for all humanity, for all time. Once there was a mother who was reading to her daughter the story of Abraham and Isaac. The little girl heard of how Abraham strapped Isaac to the wood. Abraham raised his knife and was about to sacrifice Isaac, and yet at the last second, God stopped his hand. He provided a ram for the altar. Well, the mom considered the story to be a beautiful testimony to God's faithfulness. But the young girl, she had a different take on the story. She said, I don't like killing animals. And I'm sure she did it. And you know, sometimes when we hear Jesus called the Lamb of God, we can miss the obvious. There's a killing involved here. You know, when you offered a sacrifice, you took a lamb by the scruff of the neck, an animal by the scruff of the neck. You took a butcher knife. You slit its throat. It convulsed. It squirted blood. It squirmed painfully before you and then collapsed. It was awful. And you were probably fond of that lamb. You had taken care of it. It was like killing a pet for you. See, temple Jews never heard the word sacrifice and reacted glibly. They knew the cost. And thus, when John points to Jesus and shouts, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sure he said it triumphantly, but he also said it with a tear in his eye. For he knew what it would mean for Jesus. And then John continues speaking of Jesus, verse 30. He says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. You remember, John was familiar with Jesus, they were cousins. And I've often thought of John and Jesus as teenagers, you know, sitting around the campfire, dreaming of their destinies years beforehand. But apparently that's not how it happened. It wasn't until John baptized Jesus and God's Spirit came upon him that John was certain that he was the Messiah. We're told in verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. God himself had affirmed Jesus' identity to John. It wasn't the stories he'd heard from his mother, Elizabeth, and her encounters with Mary. It wasn't even the discussions that he had had with Jesus himself that persuaded him. No, John saw God's Spirit come upon Jesus at his baptism. It was God who spoke directly to John and identified Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 35 introduces to us Jesus' first two disciples. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now apparently these two original these were two originally followers of John before he pointed them to Jesus. John had prepared the way but then he got out of the way and he turned these two over to Jesus. Verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, "What do you seek?" They said to him, "Rabbi," which is to say when translated, "teacher." Where are you staying? These two men were Peter and Andrew. They wanted to learn from Jesus. They wanted to stay with him and follow him. And so he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. The days started at 6 a.m., so the 10th hour was 4 in the afternoon. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Three times in the New Testament we find Andrew mentioned. And every time he's bringing somebody to Jesus. You know, we need to be like Andrew. Bringing folks to Jesus. That's what it's about. And you know where you can start? You can start where Andrew did. Andrew brings his brother. You can start with your own family. Andrew brought his brother, Simon Peter. Verse 42. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas is Aramaic. It was the language spoken on Jerusalem streets in Jesus' day. Was spoken by Jesus and his disciples probably 90% of the time. Here, Jesus renamed Simon Cephas or Stone. Later, he'll repeat this name change by giving Simon a Greek name, Petra or Peter, which means rock. You know, often when a person made a dramatic turnaround in their life, they would take a new name. Jesus will transform his disciple Peter from shifty. Into a solid rock. Well, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip did. Tradition tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, Philip preached the gospel in what is today Turkey. In fact, in 54 AD, he was scourged and crucified for Christ. Philip followed Jesus for the rest of his life. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. The city of Andrew and Peter, their hometown, Bethsaida was a fishing village on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Philip's decision had set off a chain reaction. Andrew found Peter. Jesus found Philip. Now Philip finds his buddy Nathaniel. Verse forty-five. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, "We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote." Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You no, know, Nathanael was justifiably skeptical. The tiny Galilean village of Nazareth had a seedy reputation. It set out a crossroads of three major trade routes. It was sort of like a South Georgia truck stop. It was the kind of place you'd find a son of a gun, not the son of God. And thus he scoffed, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's reply. He said to Nathanael, come and see. This is how Jesus had responded to Andrew and Peter in verse 39. In fact, the phrase come and see was used by the rabbis. It meant let's sit down and investigate this matter. Let's examine this personally. And I hope this is your attitude toward Jesus and toward Christianity. Hey, come and see for yourself. Don't just listen to what other people might tell you. Investigate this thoroughly and personally. Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus had not yet met Nathanael. But he had supernatural knowledge of him. Jesus knew that he was an open-minded man and would assess the facts fairly. When Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. While Nathaniel was questioning, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus, far away, had actually in his mind's eye He had seen Nathanael sitting under a fig tree, was probably enjoying its shade, munching its fruit. He'd talking this over with Philip. But Jesus had seen him, knew he was under the fig tree, and Nathanael was impressed with Jesus' prophetic powers. In fact, he answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus had seen across time and space what no man could see naturally. And it caused Nathanael to believe in Jesus. But then in verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open." and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And this was a reference to Genesis chapter 28 and Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau when he had a vision of a ladder to heaven. It was as if God was dropping to Jacob a rope. Nathanael may have been meditating on Genesis 28 under the fig tree when Philip approached him. And Jesus is saying here, That he is the ladder of which Genesis spoke. He is the way from God to man. Nathaniel will know God by following Jesus. And over the next three years, Nathaniel did see heaven come to earth. He saw the miraculous and the angelic. Think of all that Nathaniel would have missed out on had he not accepted the invitation to come and see. And this is what I hope you don't miss out. I hope you don't miss out on what Jesus wants to do in your life. Hey, come and see. For in John's first chapter, we learn that Jesus is the Logos. He's the life. He's the light. He's the Lamb. And He's the ladder. And He'll be all that to you and more if you trust Him. And I hope you will. I hope you'll follow Jesus today. Father, we thank you for your word to us.